Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is a features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk Daily opinion section. Ben is joined by two Coindesk reporters, co-hosts Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson. This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network and MIMO. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome to Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller, the features editor here at Coindesk. And joining me here is Anna Bedakova, calling in from Moscow. How are you, Anna? Hello, guys. Hello, everyone. And joining us today is Paul Brody, who's a very special person, apart from being a Coindesk columnist. He is Ernst Young's or Ian Wise global blockchain leader and someone who really knows a lot about enterprise blockchain, which is going to be the subject of the podcast today. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ben. Hi, Anna. Nice to see you both. And you're calling in from uh, Barcelona right here. That's, uh, that's a very nice place. It is very pretty out here. I can, I can see the ocean. It's beautiful. And it's really wonderful to speak at Mobile Congress and talk to real life human beings in real time. It's fantastic. Well, we're going to just unpack enterprise blockchain here just to give a bit of context. Two or three years ago, back in, in the last boom in 2017, 2018, there was a whole welter of companies that got into enterprise blockchains and they, they formed these private consortia and there were a lot of kind of fancy press releases put out about what those consortia were going to do. But it seems that two or three years later, a lot of those companies haven't really done very much and the, the whole sort of momentum in this space is moving to the public blockchains, particularly Ethereum. So we wanted to sort of unpack that with you, Paul. First of all, why do you think these consortia generally haven't been as successful as they were supposed to be? I think it's all in the name, right? Designed by committee is one of those things that just doesn't work very well. We could see that in advance. And it's really amazing when you go back in time. I had consortia envy. I had press release envy. I, I wanted to be a part of those deals. But at the same time, we weren't willing to do some of the things that were being asked of us, which was to embrace private blockchains, to embrace proprietary protocols, to sign up for you know, a lot of complexity that we didn't think would work. And so, of course, we weren't willing to tell people what they wanted to hear. And consequently, we didn't win a lot of those deals. And we didn't try too hard either because we didn't really believe in them. And I think it showed. So fast forward you know, a little bit of time, and we kept waiting to see all the press releases about kind of what had actually been done. And the answer is not very much, not for lack of effort, and not for lack of clever people in those processes, because we were in touch with a lot of those people, but really because it is just very hard to get 10 competitors in a room and have them agree on anything. That would be true not only of blockchain projects, that would be true of supply chains or, or whatever you were trying to collaborate on. Exactly. I wonder, I wonder how uh, EY's enterprise blockchain, enterprise blockchain is doing, though. The Nightfall a protocol that you developed, and not so long ago, you had an announcement of a partnership with Microsoft. Is the adoption going on? So Nightfall is a really good example of one of the things that we've invested heavily in. So I want to take you to the logic of why we ended up where we were ended up. And then you will understand kind of not only how our business did, which is, is doing pretty well, and also kind of where we're trying to go. If you think about serving enterprises, the problem with public blockchains and the reason why private blockchains were invented were because public blockchains don't enable transactional privacy. 
right? You can write smart contracts, but at the end of the day, I can see with whom you are transacting and I can see all the rules in your private, your contract, right? And so no company is ever going to sign up for a deal where they can, where their competition can see from whom they are buying, how much they are buying, when they are buying it and how much they are paying. So public blockchains in their original state have only very, very limited enterprise applications. So two things happen. We, we said, first of all, we really want to get to public blockchains, but for most applications, our clients are not there yet. So we made a, a couple of important decisions. Number one, we decided that we would compromise with our kind of strategic view and we would do some private blockchains, but we would only do private blockchains on Ethereum, which is a blockchain technology stack that has a public version. And the idea was we can start you on private and we can eventually migrate you to a public ecosystem. So that is where the genesis of the Microsoft deal came from. Everything that we love and want to do on public blockchains, we did first with Microsoft around the Xbox private blockchain project. So that was the, the first important thing. The second important thing was to said, okay, you know, what can we use public blockchains for without any further changes? And the answer is actually a fair amount, especially things like supply chain traceability. It's the purpose of your using a public blockchain is to record a public document, to show history, to, to make something public and visible then you can use it without modification because you're trying to, to make it public. And then the third thing we said is, okay, what do we have to do in order to get public blockchain ready for private enterprise usage? And if you think about it, almost all business agreements come down to this. One party has money and the other party has stuff. And what we are doing is that money is being exchanged for stuff under the terms of an agreement. So what you have in that is money and stuff, which can be represented by tokens and that are being transferred to each other. And then you have the business rules and the agreement that's represented as a smart contract. So what we need in the end are, are two things. Number one, private transfers and payments of tokens. And number two, private business logic. Nightfall was our first project and that was a private token transfer and payment technology. And we put that out into the public domain and our goal was to, to show people that you could do secure private transactions on the public blockchains reliably and safely. So it's about combining the best of both worlds, uh, private and public. So all these consortia, just going back to the consortia for a moment, I mean, all these companies that signed up for uh, shipping and banking and, and, and all those other chains, are they still doing their own blockchain projects, maybe on Ethereum, or have they just given up on blockchain altogether, do you think? Well, some of them have definitely petered out because they ran out of budget or they ran out of patience. Some of them are continuing on this path, but, but much more slowly right? And they're struggling to get others involved, right? And they're struggling because they're running into a couple of different problems. So one problem is, let's call it a, a standards problem, right? So an, an auto industry group or a shipping industry group can all agree upon their own standards. But the problem is, if I want to make a product and get it to market, I need parts, I need finance, I need shipping, I need insurance, I need warehousing. And if each industry makes their own blockchain, I, I got to move across a bunch of blockchains. So they're really, really struggling with onboarding partners because they're not sure what the value proposition is. And then also they have kind of an ecosystem problem. And it was, we had a really sort of stark demonstration of this. We worked with a company in Malaysia and we worked with them on food traceability. But one of their other issues was trade-based financing, so trade financing. And they were looking at joining an existing consortium blockchain that did trade finance. And they looked at this consortium blockchain and they said, we, we don't like it. And we don't like it because 
there are only a very limited number of participants in this, this consortium, and they are amount to the very small number of identical banks that we already work with. So we don't get more competition. All we do is get to digitize and automate the paperwork we have, but we don't get a better ecosystem. So we're not really sure what the value proposition is for us. But by e ecosystem in, in that scenario, what, what, what do you mean by that exactly? What they would like to get and what we verified, we, we did a couple of studies with Forrester and what we found was a couple of important things. Like number one, companies want, they know that they need other participants in the ecosystem, not just other companies in their own value chain, but they want more competition. They want suppliers. If I am a shipping company, right. I would like to have not one or two, but I would like 50 insurance companies in this ecosystem. And if you look at the DeFi ecosystem, and we'll come back to this, I hope later, but DeFi had a profound impact. People were like, why should I settle for one or two insurance providers? I want 50, right? I want intense competition. I want excellent rates. And what was really hard is like, if you were building a shipping logistics blockchain or a manufacturing parts blockchain, you were lucky if you had one non-shipping or non-part manufacturing company in that blockchain, Never mind a selection of 50 competitive service and insurance providers. So what people are starting to realize is like that the value proposition of the competitive ecosystem in these closed blockchains wasn't very good either. Right. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. Looking to exit the volatility of crypto, but don't want to deal with the inflation of the dollar? Minting PAR using MIMO DeFi is exactly what you're looking for to get ahead of that. PAR is the number one Europeg token on the market, minted at an incredibly low 2% interest rate and backed by collaterals like Ether, Bitcoin, and USDC. Stabilize your portfolio, open a vault, and access the power of blockchain through MIMO protocol today at MIMO.capital. That's MIMO, M-I-M-O, dot capital. It looks like not just the potential users of enterprise blockchain are using faith in the very concept of it, but the service providers also are. We reported not really long ago that both IBM and Microsoft kind of really radically scaled down their blockchain projects. Uh, and to anyone watching the space, you would just say, well, looks like enterprise blockchain is dead. Would you respond to that? Is it dead? Is it evolving in some way? What's, what's going on with it? So it's not dead, but these companies are responding to the market signal. And what's being exited isn't the enterprise blockchain space. What you're seeing is companies exiting the private blockchain space. And I think it's a small difference in wording, but it's a, it's a huge difference in the vision. Our business hasn't seen any change. I mean, our you know, we don't give out exact details, but our three-year compound annual growth rate is 96%. We just signed our largest deal ever earlier this week with a large client. So it's enterprise stuff. 
is going gangbusters. And what's happened is it has morphed quite a bit. So first of all, it's moved largely away from private, not completely, but largely. Secondly, it's moved away from, I'll call this the, what is blockchain? What can it do for me discussion, right? If you remember the Dilbert cartoons, they were great. It's like, I want a blockchain. What colors do they come in? We've moved away from what color blockchain can I have to, we want a procurement solution or we want a supply chain traceability solution. And what we are now selling is solutions. And so the solutions that work and that are productized for a particular industry are selling really well. And the ones that never took off, we probably killed like half of our stuff. There was a time three years ago, you came to EY, you'd be like, well, I want to do this and that. And how about you guys think of it as a potential future product and you invest in it? We would sell it for practically nothing and we would invest in it, it wouldn't go anywhere. Now we are much more mature in sort of knowing exactly what the value proposition is. And increasingly, we sell it to clients without really talking about it as blockchain. It's a solution that does public sector finance accountability, that does supply chain traceability, that does smart contract security. And those fill very specific uh, kind of requirements. Could you talk about maybe in, in sort of basic first principles about why a company should use blockchain, say in, in that supply chain example there? I mean, because as I was struck by one thing you said in, in a column recently, you said blockchains will transform global commerce because they are going to do the cost of transactions more cheaply between firms. So it's basically that kind of hardwiring of the kind of international economy whereby companies are talking to one another on blockchains. So how does that play out in practice and how is that different from this kind of imagined reality that we had two or three years ago? So companies really struggle to work with each other effectively. And I'm very lucky. I spent a lot of years in supply chain planning, and it turns out that companies are much more sophisticated about their internal operations than they are about what they can do externally. So inside of a large enterprise, we have things like ERP. SAP is a good example, right? With SAP, I can have common data and common process. So just to give you one little example, let's say that my company buys a lot of laptops, which they do. Right. And we decide to make a deal with a particular company as our preferred laptop supplier. In the old days, it was great if you made a preferred laptop supplier deal, but you had no way of enforcing it. After ERP came around, you could tell with a lot of precision exactly how many purchase orders had been issued, to whom they had been issued. And if you tried to issue a purchase order for a laptop to a non-preferred supplier, it might not even let you do it. So ERP let companies have enforced process and common data across the enterprise. And it made it possible for them to be much more credible negotiators because now it wasn't just like, hey, we'll try to buy a lot from you. It was like, we will buy all of our laptops from you unless somebody has incredibly good reason and like 25 you know, vice presidents sign off on it. All of that common process and common automation goes out the window when two companies start transacting with each other, right? And never mind, you know, two or three or, or in like a shipping, purchasing triangle kind of process. It doesn't work well at all. In fact, it's a complete mess. And companies, a really good example, they'll negotiate the volume discount. But if the volume discount applies to them and two other subsidiaries that are not in the same system or a business partner, five minutes after they've signed the deal, they've forgotten how much volume they've purchased. So companies can't do this well, but IT systems that can span multiple companies can. Now, the challenge here and, and the thing that we discovered is there has been a fix for this for like 25 years. It's called a centralized system. And the problem here is not that we can't make centralized systems. For whatever reason, the companies that operate centralized systems 
can never seem to resist the temptation to abuse that power. And so what companies have learned over and over again is that your data about your business and your process isn't safe in the hands of a third party. And that's why, although we have big global digital marketplaces for things like consumer products or ride sharing, there are no equivalents for these in most cases on the enterprise side, because enterprises look at this and they're like, I don't trust this, right? My, my sensitive business agreements are, are too important to share with others. And so here we are, it's 2021. And the main way some of the world's biggest companies transact with their biggest suppliers is a system called EDI, which is basically business to business text messaging that dates from the 1970s, right? It has no business logic in it. It has no rules. It only works from one party to the other. It's very inadequate. Now with blockchain, I can give you shared business logic, I can give you shared process, and I can do it without ever worrying that there's some central party that later on can be like, wow, that looks interesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tilt the playing field. I'm gonna get into that business. I'm gonna mine that data, right? And so if I can implement stuff on a public chain with no central controlling party, but with privacy, I have everything that I could possibly want in a centrally administered system, without the central administrator. But somebody would say to that, so you're going to deal with the immense amount of computing and other challenges of decentralized blockchains if you really want to go on a decentralized blockchain. And I just want to cite here a very well-known Bitcoin developer, Jameson Lop, who once tweeted, blockchain has to be the worst data structure I've come across to use as a high-performance database. It's like saying you're building the world's fastest append-only log. So are they really the optimal solution if you just want to have a secure information exchange with your counterparties? No, but I think you are boiling it down to something that's too simple, which is a secure information exchange. We want to do more than have a secure information exchange, but you are not wrong about the fact that this process is insanely complicated and very challenging. And I would say one of the toughest lessons that we've had over the last few years is that none of this works unless you hide the sausage making, the ugly complexity of blockchain from the end user. It's too complicated. And, you know, we had this aha moment a couple of years ago where we built a prototype for a client at their request and we thought it worked great. And the client was like, wow, this is complicated and I'm not even sure I understand it. And so they opted not to move forward. We were patting ourselves on the back. I was getting to write the press release. I was like, this is amazing. I was congratulating the engineering team. And the client's like, no, thanks. Right. Too complicated. And that led us towards a couple of important things. But one of them was blockchain.ey.com. And with blockchain.ey.com, what we did was we stood up a set of a web user interface and then a set of APIs that for regular developers feel like any other API. So, you know, you can, and in fact, Peroni Beer is minting a unique new NFT every time they generate a new batch of beer. That's coming directly from their ERP system. It's going into blockchain.ey.com. They are not spending any time thinking about how they configure the NFT. They don't worry about whether it's on layer one or layer two. They don't worry about kind of zero knowledge proof if it's gonna be with privacy. They don't worry about any of that. They just plug it in from their ERP. They use our API and our system manages that. And so our goal is to make blockchain look and feel like any other web application, except for it's one in which you have control of your data and, and process 
and you have control over kind of how this, this process moves, but you don't have to deal with any of the, the complexity. So across all the kind of business use cases for enterprise blockchain, I mean, what do you think so far has made the most dramatic improvement either in terms of cost efficiency or maybe even revenue generation? At the industrial level, by far, the most you know, successful is product traceability and then smart contract testing. So those are you know, the, the benchmark data that we are have, or sorry, not smart contract testing, smart contract operation. So the benchmark data that we have from Microsoft is really amazing. And it points to kind of the huge promise and potential of this industry. So Microsoft has about 3,000 different business contracts around which the Xbox video game system runs. And each one of them is, is mostly different because there are some of them are with really big, successful companies that have you know, brand name franchises and others are with small publishers. And for each one of them, they have to calculate the rules separately. Under the existing system, under the legacy system, it takes about 45 days after the end of the month for them to total up everything and tell business partners what they owe them in terms of consumption. With the blockchain solution that we developed jointly with Microsoft, a single transaction will show up completed and processed within four to five minutes. So we went from 45 days down to, to four to five minutes. So 99% cycle time reduction. When we're done, we're estimating now we'll be at about 40% lower cost. And this particular project will have cost a lot, a lot more than most other projects because we did so many things for the first time. And honestly, we did quite a few of those twice. So when we're all done, right, the, the total cost will be substantially less. The process will be much faster. And very importantly, companies won't be surprised at the end of 45 days with their totals. They'll be able to see almost immediately as things are flowing, is the logic working correctly? Am I being paid the right amount? That, that is already having a very substantial positive impact on the ecosystem. So if I can scale that up, right? If you think about, you know, the average enterprise transaction consumes one to two hours of administrative time per person, right? And companies do, you know, tens of millions of them each year. We're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars over time of administrative complexity that we can get rid of. Other than the EY's enterprise blockchain project, can you talk about any other success stories in the enterprise blockchain space? Any projects that announced that they went in production and they really work now? So I believe that there's a couple that I can think of. There's one that is very focused on prescription drug purchasing agreements. It's a private blockchain, but it does a lot of the things that we aspire to do, and they've successfully recruited a number of other business partners in this space. And they have a similar model, which is they're, they're automating some of this process. It's an interesting case for us because ultimately, I believe any business process that you can represent as tokens and smart contracts, which is almost any process, we can move on to the blockchain. The problem is, if you want to do it on a public blockchain, you have to represent that business logic as a mathematical proof. And our ability to do that is still relatively limited. You may have seen an announcement we created let's say a companion product to Nightfall that we also donated into the public domain. We announced it a couple of months ago. It's called Starlight. And while Nightfall does secure private transactions in terms of transfers and payments, what Starlight is intended to do, and it's still a prototype, is to allow you to take almost any form of business logic and compile it into a mathematical proof. And one of the things that we looked at was medical pricing. Medical pricing is, it's like the ultra marathon Right. It is to regular pricing agreements what an ultra marathon is to like the 100 meter dash. Right. It's just so much more complicated, so much more challenging. And 
you know, I look at what they've done, this other company, and I'm super impressed with their accomplishments. They're doing it all on a private blockchain, which I think might not be sustainable, but I love what they've done. And when I'm able to do that on a public blockchain with zero knowledge proofs, I'm going to be all over that because I am jealous of their success. No question. And on what blockchain that project runs? I believe it's running on a fork of Ethereum, but I'm not sure. Before we get into DeFi, which is an interesting topic, you said in one piece that you wrote for Coindesk and talked about how smaller companies were going to be able to compete more easily with larger companies in this new blockchain-mediated world. Could you explain why the whole theory of size eating, equaling power in the marketplace might be going away, that kind of logic might be going away in a world in which we can share resources much more easily across these kind of interconnected systems? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, and, and I, you'll have to forgive me for talking about it this way, but I, I did a lot of undergrad economics. There's kind of two forces that are always pushing each other in, in an enterprise ecosystem. One is the economies of scale. The bigger you get, the more powerful your negotiating position is, the better your branding and your marketing. EY, we are really big. You know, when, when we bring a product to market, I can bring it to market like 100 countries, right? It's really hard for a startup to compete with that. On the other hand, there are also diseconomies. The bigger you get, the more complex you are, the harder it is to be nimble, right? A startup can often develop a product sometimes faster than, than we can. So there are economies of scale, there are diseconomies of scale. One of the big areas that has big economies of scale is in system integration between two enterprises. Because my computer system and your computer system, in most cases, in, in almost all enterprises, aren't compatible. And in order for a company to integrate with another business partner, almost always you need to call in some consultants. You've got to do, it's kind of like a hardwired connection, right? It's, you imagine it's the electrical equivalent of you've got some electrician, he's ripping open the cable and he's like splicing wires together. That's how it's done. And blockchains are different though. Blockchains are to traditional system integration, what Lego is to like building materials, right? With blockchains, I don't have to, to splice the lines together. I got a socket, I got a plug, and I'm going to just stick them together and they're going to work. And this comes to some of our vision for the future, as well as the power of DeFi, which is tokenization. And it's why, to your point, Anna, earlier, you talked about like, you know, do we just want to enable a private conversation with the two parties? Absolutely not. That's not what we want to do. What we want to do is not just enable this, but we want, what we want to do is to tokenize in a standardized, repeatable, interoperable way, the inputs and outputs of business process. So it's not just that I can send you a message, my stuff is ready, you should pay me, but my stuff is represented as this digital asset and your purchase order is a token and my stuff is a token and my money is a token. And now we've turned everything into these standardized interoperable Lego blocks. And it's not just that we can move these messages back and forth to each other in private, but it's also that if I have a million dollars worth of inventory, or you've given me a purchase order for a million dollars worth of product, that I can, at a click of a button, show that to a bank and get $800,000 in working capital to buy the raw materials I need to make the product. So I don't just want to enable the, the messaging and the communication. I want to standardize things and see things standardized in such a way that you can snap together very sophisticated business processes and do it in an incredibly simple and cheap way. And that was a vision that we had, but it was something that DeFi did in reality with finance, not with industrial stuff, but with finance. And this is why you know, DeFi had a big galvanizing effect on enterprise blockchain, because it showed 
what could happen and how quickly you could innovate in an ecosystem when you hit that critical mass of the right Lego locks and the right innovators. But then talking about DeFi, during past month, I think everybody saw just how unpredictable that industry can be. And, you know, the tokens uh, lose their peg, the protocols get exploited, and we never can predict how these protocols can be exploited, even the old ones. And you're talking about such a complex system with oracles, with multiple assets issued on a public blockchain that is actually open to this game theory play that has an endless, you know, the en kind of an endless set of threats and challenges, some of which we don't even know about yet. So I'm just curious when you talk about that with your clients, do they imagine like the vastness of this task and are they ready to take on this risks, the open decentralized systems, basically the unpredictability of these risks? Not always. They are absolutely not always ready to. And honestly, I had a very funny moment. I had a, had a meeting with a client and I was explaining to her, she was a risk executive at a major US bank. And I was explaining how tokenized, collateralized loans are implemented. And honestly, I, I thought at one point I was going to have to just call 911. I mean, you know, she was sort of doing the message like, oh my, she was thinking about the, like, the level of systemic risk involved and the exploitability. And, you know, you could just see that she was working out. She's a very smart lady. She was working out exactly how bad this could possibly be. And she was thinking like, wow, this could get really bad. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It could be terrible. And the answer is yes. You know, what I tell people is this. What we're seeing in DeFi is characteristic of these like hyper innovative systems. And it's really, it's full of contradictions. So on the one hand, you'll see people release incredibly innovative, groundbreaking business logic without doing any testing. And we're just like, what, like, are you crazy? Right? There's people's money moving around. Um, and, but that seems to be characteristic of the, the industry. And, and so I believe what's get, what we're in is this sort of extreme innovation phase associated with a lot of risk, rapid iteration. And, and by the way, the participants in this ecosystem have not been deterred by any of these hacks, right? Because they're incredibly risk tolerant, right? They know what's at stake, which is this opportunity to capture a lot of value and to understand it. And what I tell clients is, this is a normal part of the process, right? And, you know, if you go back to the, you know, the early days of the web, we had similar exploits on, on routinely and we didn't really know how to handle them. Now, we don't have less hacking today, but we're much more mature, you know, We've all been through like the phase where you, you get the new credit card in the mail. I mean, it, it used to be much more painful. Like you found out and you fought your credit card charges for months and things like that. So we're, we're going to get to a gradually to a more mature process. And what I tell people is you need to, to focus on two things. Number one, let's think about what this, this can do when it's working properly and when it gets matured and it gets a bit more stable, right? And I don't expect, by the way, when I say stable, I don't mean that crypto prices are going to be more stable, but I mean the software code itself is going to be more stable. It's going to be more mature. So think about what happens as, as that matures. And then number two, look at how fast this ecosystem is evolving, right? We've started with finance. We, we've gone from, you know, a few stable coins and a lending protocol and a deposit, you know, contract to a business with a couple hundred billion dollars worth of assets and hundreds of services. So Look at the pace of innovation. That's incredibly important, right? And then secondly, try to think about how you will manage that risk, not how you will avoid it. Do you see a similar sort of ecosystem of innovation with these kind of teams of iterative 
processes going on in the enterprise space. And I'm sure it's quite hard to replicate that sort of decentralized open source community of lots and lots of people innovating on wild ideas and bringing that into the kind of corporate sphere. There's no question that startups represent the vast majority of the innovation that's going on in this ecosystem. That's pretty normal. I, I think enterprises will catch up. They will, they will join in. I think one thing that is happening over time is that the gap between when startups industrialize a product and when enterprises kind of join onto it is gradually been closing. So days of the internet, there was a lot of skepticism and it took quite a while. You know, now I'm talking to all the major banks, right? We're talking to so many companies. The conversation isn't, hey, is this blockchain thing for real? It's what services can we deliver? How do we stay competitive? Where is this market headed? And that there is much more of a bias towards action. So it's taken a few years for blockchain to really establish itself. But now we see a real bias to action and a real set of plans by enterprises. You're going to see enterprises offering DeFi services, delivering DeFi services to their customers in a short order. And I think that's a pattern that will repeat itself in the industrial ecosystem as well. How would that work? I mean, what would that kind of enterprise DeFi system look like? A really good example of kind of enterprise DeFi that I want to see is purchase orders. So we believe that purchase orders and enterprise purchasing agreements are a really perfect example of a process that companies are really bad at, generally speaking. So they negotiate deals, they can't remember how to implement them, and then consequently, they can't keep track of them. A really good example of this will be if we can not only implement volume purchasing contracts, which we're doing now, but we can tokenize the output, not only tokenize the purchase order, but also the receivable. And then lots of enterprises want to have better working capital process. So they would love to be able to take those tokenized receivables or the purchase orders and immediately put them into a DeFi ecosystem. And so two things are happening right now. Number one, we're talking to some of our enterprise clients with whom we are doing procurement and talking to them about, okay, how would we tokenize your purchase orders or invoices? And, and would you like to be able to do that? And then secondly, we're talking proactively to the to members of the DeFi community to talk about what would it take for you to stand up a service that would allow me to give you this tokenized purchase order invoice and for you to automatically provide working capital against it. Right. It's really interesting how you want to marry this quite different two worlds. It will be really interesting to look how it works. Definitely. I didn't think of the phrase DeFi, but the phrase we used to call it four years ago at EY, this has been on our agenda for a long time, we call this embedded finance. And this idea was that in every enterprise business process, that finance is often separate. If you think about like a company that builds a new factory, they get financing and then they build a factory. What we think of is that the financing process will be embedded in the factory construction just from day one, right? Or the product output. So we, we tend to, we still used to call this embedded finance. Now DeFi is, is maybe a better name. It's certainly caught on, but I, I think this is, a, this is a vision we've had for a while. And it's really exciting to see the infrastructure start to take shape. Interesting. Well, well thanks very much for, for coming on the show, Paul. That was a fascinating look at the past and the future of the space. And I think there's a lot more to look forward to in the future. Ben and Anna, thank you. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Michelle, for producing this. And thanks to Paul Brody of Ernst & Young EY. He's a fascinating guy. And we'll see you next time. See you next week, everyone. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Badakova, and guest 
Paul Brody. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Ender. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.